0: Welcome to the Church Times Podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen
1: reader. It's really good to have uh, Guy Vince here come down from London um, and uh, actually hasn't got a copy of her book with her at the moment. Uh, but there are lots of copies um, at the at the bookshop afterwards. But here is the book, Nomad Century. And um, Gaia, a, um, an academic, a broadcaster, um, a, a journalist, lots of uh, editorial experience with nature, with uh, the new scientist and so on, uh, and uh, an honorary senior um, research fellow at UCL. Um, lots of wonderful background for this uh, really excellent book, um, which I have found utterly fascinating. Let me just to give you an idea here on the front, um, the most important book I imagine I'll ever read, this wasn't by Vince, uh, By, by uh, sorry, Cara Creighton saying this.
0: I absolutely I, agree though
1: I've, with that
0: 100 sent it correct.
1: It'll lock you flat, it says. Bill Bryson says, one of the finest science writers at work today, Nomad Century is a, a landmark work, terrifying in its message and urgency, but ultimately empowering its conviction about a path forward. Brilliant, read this to understand our future. Uh, an urgent, compassionate guide to our future on this planet. The most important book you'll read all year. So you get the idea, lots of enthusiasm um, for this really excellent book. Um, and as, I suppose, as, as Gaia says herself, you know, we, we have to ha- hear what the serious nature uh, of climate change is. So the first part of the book does do that, but most of the book, is giving a really positive alternative approach um, to how we cope with that, which is one not sufficiently heard. So thank you so much um, for writing this, Gaia. If I can just give a very, a very, very briefest, précis of what it's saying. Uh, with every degree of temperature rise, a billion people will be displaced from the zone in which humans have lived for thousands of years. The brutal truth is that huge swathes of the world are becoming uninhabitable. The vital message of this book is that migration is not the problem, it's the solution. That's the key. So migration brings benefits not only to migrants themselves, but to host countries, many of which face demographic crises and labor shortages. And uh, if I can just pull out one quote, um, it'll just precede the story. As humanity faces its greatest environmental challenge, a population of 10 billion people, resource limitations and a demographic crisis, we should not be handicapped. We should not be handicapping ourselves by limiting our most important survival tool. We will only meet our global challenges through planned and extensive human movement and redistribution. This time we need a globally managed effort that recognizes our shared humanity on this shared earth. We need lawful, safe, planned and facilitated migration. So there's the story, Gaia um migration is inevitable it's um, it's essential and it's economically beneficial and it's underway already and do you think that argument is winning
0: um, well, so we, we we are living in a particularly grim time in terms of populist leaders, although I would say that that has changed, you know we're already seeing the replacement of For example, um, Donald Trump is no longer president. So I think mood is shifting to a certain degree. We're also experiencing the real need to do something about our depopulating cities, um, our labor force shortages, and the answer, you know, people are not having enough babies to support an aging population. And the answer to that is immigration. As all leaders know, even if Publicly, they, you know, with one hand say, stay out, go go back across the sea, go to Rwanda, cross that, um, you know, you can't cross the Mexican border. With the other hand, they are very much trying to bring in people because we haven't got enough farm labourers, we haven't got enough nurses, we haven't got enough uh, construction workers, truck drivers, hospitality workers, doctors, dentists, I mean, I could go on. We, we have shortages in, in every single uh, labour field at the moment and that is particularly acute in countries like britain that have and and the us which have made it harder trump put in all sorts of restrictions and of course brexit puts in lots of restrictions um to make it harder for people and less competitive in a uh, market for people to um, come and work there you know one of the messages really from this book is that migration is not a security issue it really isn't it's a it's an economic issue and, of course, the humanitarian issue. And um, at the moment, it's very much departments um, across the world that are looking at um, uh, migration rules are, you know, the Home Office, so they, it, Homeland Security. It's very much dealt with as a security issue. Whereas, um, you know, labour, work, that that is not um, the education department. You know, we need students. I mean, it,
1: it's the wrong department. Are, are you... Are you saying then, Gaia, that there are different levels of story going on here? I mean, the the popular narrative is that we're in a period of the twilight of democracy, um, you know, that we're becoming uh, more isolationist, more nationalistic, more, um, you know, Little England or, um, you know, wherever. So, uh, and okay, we may get aberrations. um, Trump goes, but will he come back? Bolsonaro goes, but, you know, will he come back? There's a popular narrative that we are really facing isolationism again, you know, Putin, etc. And are you saying that there's actually a deeper narrative uh, that people are actually grasping this, that those who really matter are realising that migration, for instance, has has real positive benefits? You think that is actually... Yeah,
0: absolutely. I I do think that, I mean, if you look, there's some quite interesting surveys out only um, this week looking at public conception and public um, attitudes towards immigration, towards um, foreign workers and so on in the United Kingdom. Well, it, it was a European, Europe-wide um, survey, actually, massive survey. And, you know, you might look at our national narrative and think, you know, Suella Braverman's policies or um, Pretty Patel's or, you know, the government policy, one of its five things that it deems most important to prioritise in this time when the country is, is broken, nothing works. You can't get a train, you can't get a doctor, you can't um, get picked up in an ambulance. I mean, it's, it, the schools are closed for strikes. One of its five priorities is to push the boats back. I mean, that's actually, that is actually very low in um, the priority of the public. They, the public put, um, conceptions um, public attitudes towards immigrants are at an all-time high. Pe- people are very receptive. Um, Britain is performing one of the top, if not the top, in most of these surveys of acceptance of immigrants. We are very, very much less xenophobic than our leadership would would indicate. You know, for example, one of the questions was, should native workers be prioritised um, for jobs over... Um, over immigrant workers. And over the last um, five years, that has um, shifted massively in Britain um, to people thinking that actually, no, they shouldn't, they, sh- they should have equal, um, equal rights. So just, there are, there are lots of questions about that. But basically, we are, we are a lot more accepting, we're a lot more progressive than, um, than our leadership. And, and I think that will be reflected, hopefully, um, when we have an election, when we're allowed an election.
1: Yeah, just yeah. Um, coming back to the book in terms mm-hmm. of how you produced it and how you, how it came to be, I I just found it utterly fascinating in some of the the, the details you you've dug out. I mean, for instance, Japan is expected to go from one hundred and twenty-eight million people to fewer than fifty-three million by two thousand one hundred. You know, would you have thought that? I'd no idea
0: yeah at the moment um adult nappies are outselling infant nappies in japan really yeah that is an extent of the demographic issues they're facing and japan is actually interesting because it's one of the most um xenophobic countries in terms of it they it was easier to become a citizen as a robot as an ai than it is for a human from another country this is how but but just you know it's it's such an um a fundamental part of culture there this um sort of sealed off uh isolationist um idea of what makes someone um japanese even that has had to see to the reality that they really desperately need people and so they've already started in the last um 3 or 4 years they've actually started loosening those um, requirements to become a new citizen. So it's easier. And um, yeah, that's unprecedented. Uh,
1: and, and here's another. Um, if rich countries increase their population by just 3% through immigration, they would boost global GDP by over $356 billion in less than a decade, if we just accept it. Now, these are extraordinary details. And I, I mean, you did a lot of research on this, but <laughs> I mean, tell me how you go about it's just full of of this detail you You've traveled a lot um you're forever reading, presumably you're researching all the time how do, How do you gather all the material for a fascinating book like this
0: well i think this is this is really the product of um more than a decade's work really so i I traveled around the world for two and a half years um continuously, mainly around the global south around Around 10 years ago now. And so a lot of the relationships I made there, the first-hand accounts and the research, the on-the-ground research, comes, you know, stems from that trip, even if it's been sort of augmented since. And through conversations with um, specialist academics, through, you know library research, yeah
1: you have some pretty remarkable recording. Facilities, I think, don't you? I mean, to have gathered all this and retained it. But anyway, it, it's all here. It makes a fascinating read. But what it struck me as I read it was that the kind of thinking that you're um, positing requires a huge change in global mindset. I think you're you're trying to undermine my belief in that. You know, that you're trying to say it is actually underway. But can you just give me more encouragement that our addiction to growth, for instance? is something we can actually begin to question seriously. Anyway, it's, I'm talking about um, the, the scale of the mindset change that we need if we are really to grasp in the time frame we've got available, the changes that are needed. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering um, with our addiction to growth, where it means that really our political mindsets are, are fixed in very short-term thinking um whether do you think we can break out of that short termism um to to think uh, globally to think to think future sufficiently
0: yeah so so two things here first of all yes we we do have a very short term mindset and that is um embedded within our political structure you know we have these short term elections and unfortunately we have very very poor leadership at the moment we don't have there are very few examples of leaders, I would say globally, not just I mean obviously in Britain we have a particularly dire situation, but but even globally, there are very few leaders who I think really show visionary um, visionary leadership and are capable of and also a also a moral leadership. And I think that is that is really lacking. I think in civil society generally, there is there's been a kind of vacancy there for a while. I think, you know, they, we have examples of moral leadership. Um, I would say Joe Biden is doing a much better job of that than um, many of the leaders around. Gordon Brown was a good example of somebody who who has a sort of moral, you know, they're led by something other than um, their own personal gain. I think is what I'm trying to say here, which is like a pretty low bar, isn't it? And I think the long term vision comes with that, right, because you're not just doing it for personal, your, your own electoral um, gain. You're doing it with a vision for your, uh, the betterment of the society, according to those values that you're subscribing to. And I'm not saying for any particular party. I'm just saying generally, you know, if the idea is that people go into politics as a sort of a vocation, um, to deliver that, and there hasn 't been much of that, so there's that the The other thing is that in terms of growth, I am not anti growth actually I really am not anti growth I think that we have levels of poverty where it would be kind of i I've, I actually find it a bit obscene to talk about anti growth under those circumstances, but what we have at the moment is very environmentally and socially destructive and and also Um, economically destructive growth actually because um it leads to huge huge inequality and we have to break that we have to decouple that and that that is actually happening it's it's already underway in terms of um in terms of decoupling economic growth GDP um which is a very poor measure of growth we can use a lot better measures of growth and there are some great academic people like Kate um Rayworth have come up with this um, idea of circular, well, she didn't come up with the idea, but she's um, she's really given a lot of thought to a circular economy, um, which is what we need to move into. Clearly, we can't have this linear, um, you know, make something, discard it, start again, make something, discard it. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to bring in circularity, but we also need to decouple economic growth from environmental degradation, um, from social degradation. and And, you know, that is happening. Um, in in several nations now, economic growth is no longer linked to uh, an increase in um, carbon intensity. So that's that's really interesting.
1: Okay. Um,
0: but but also, you know, the nature of what we face in terms of the Earth system changes that we're invoking at the moment are on such a level and are so unprecedented and are so well modeled and so well understood. That we can make long-term predictions and we can think long-term and we absolutely have to in that respect, in terms of social, um, how we respond to that, social, political, economic prediction, that's much harder to model and it's much harder to um, work out. And that's why we need to plan, I think, um, for the long-term. And, you know, I wrote this book because I want people to have a vision of the future. I don't want them just to be kind of, to react to every, every, disaster as it unfolds but to actually have agency to think what is the what is the vision of a better world a better Anthropocene what would that look like what does it look like for you you know what does it look like for me you know it's enough food and water for everyone it's it's purpose it's opportunity it's having um delight and joy and um a restored ecosystem living in a in a natural world that isn't polluted doesn't have dirty air and water you know, that's the kind of bare minimum that I want to see. Okay, so how do we get there, given the environmental constraint?
1: Sure. The constraints we're living it, uh, with, uh, I read here as you're basing your analysis in the first part of the book on a, uh, a three to four degree increase uh, in global temperatures. Others, of course, talk about 2% and even and impossibility, one and a half percent, et cetera. Uh, do you think we can realistically be looking for less than 3% or 3 and 4%? I mean,
0: Yeah, uh, degrees, we? you mean. Yeah, degrees, yeah. sorry. Yeah, so I mean, at the moment, we're uh, between 1.2 and 1.3 degrees above the pre-industrial average. We're going to cross 1.5 degrees. Well, we're actually going to cross 1.5 degrees probably later this year, if not next year. But that will be a slight aberration driven by the volcanic eruption in Toba. So um, it will uh, it's a slight blip, but we will cross 1.5 degrees um, within the next six years, certainly by the early 2030s, uh, without a doubt. And then we're going to, just going to rise. Um, we're going to rise above 2 degrees. We're going to rise above 2.5 degrees. At the moment, we're sort of, due to carbon intensity, due to... Um, Due to all uh, 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 many sort of feedback effects, um, there is a quite strong likelihood that we will end up somewhere between three and four degrees. Basically, it's somewhere between two point five and four degrees, and we don't know. It depends on so many different. Um, depends how Earth systems respond to uh, what we're doing, and it depends how how well and how fast we mitigate. We are doing. We are making that transition to renewable energy much much faster than anyone predicted. That's brilliant. But it's still, you know, we still need to do it at least two and a half times faster, um, just to meet our um, our commitments, which we're not we're not going to do. Um, I don't think. Perhaps we will. That would be brilliant. There, you know, that we do have many many choices. We could um, we could deploy geoengineering techniques that would artificially lower the temperature of the planet. You know, that's not an easy thing to do. It's neither easy technologically nor is it easy um, socially because it would involve global negotiations of the kind that we're using to reduce our other geoengineering, which is injecting carbon particles into the atmosphere. You know, none of this is easy, but yes, there is a very strong risk that we will end up and between three and four degrees. And that, and that doesn't mean, you know, even if it's 2.5 degrees, it doesn't mean that the temperature slowly rises to 2.5 by the end of the century. No, not at all. It will rise much higher, you know, and then come down, we hope, to as low as 2.5 or as low as 3. Okay, so in the meantime, bearing in mind that we're already at 1.2 to 1.3 and we are experiencing back-to-back severe climate impacts, um, extreme weather conditions across the globe, you know, three million people were displaced in the U.S. Um, last year. Very rich nation, very able to adapt. You know, in Pakistan, 33 million people displaced in a couple of weeks. Um, and, and this is just going to continue
1: and get much more work. And, and where, Gaia, are you saying people are going to have to migrate to? Because the yeah. picture you give is... It's fairly extreme, actually, just to say where... Yeah,
0: you so, so if, you look at the, if you look at the models of, um, of the Earth, where the uh, hotspots are, so at the moment, uh, severe heat makes about 1% of the Earth's land surface uninhabitable. Um, by 2070, that will be 20% of the Earth will be uninhabitable, um, which uh, corresponds to about a third of the, where the human population is at the moment. By 2070, the human population will be at least nine, between nine and 10 billion people, we think. So that's three billion people living. uh, Well, actually, most of the population growth is occurring in this band as well. And this is an equatorial band. It's wide. So it's the tropics, but it also extends up to, you know, southern Europe. I mean, the south of Spain has already lost its um, Mediterranean climate. It's already in a, a desert climate now. Um, we, we are seeing drought, um, there's a severe drought at the moment in Venice. Um, but this is, this is going to extend and, um, across and and further south as well. But when you look at, and also coastlines will become uninhabitable river deltas, most of the world's biggest cities. And if you look at where the most of the land is in the higher latitudes, because of the shape of the continents it's along the top. So it's northern latitudes um, will experience, I mean, nowhere on earth is going to escape climate impacts. Everywhere is going to be affected. But these northern latitudes will have lesser impacts, more manageable impacts. They will be um, better able to adapt, partly because they're wealthier, have better governance and, and so on. And, oh, and you... that is where the land is.
1: So you're really talking about, you know, northern Canada, Siberia, Patagonia, okay. Has media, you know the real extremes yeah. are you
0: yeah. yes yeah
1: the massive movement's going to have to be there
0: yes no not everybody will have to move no. so so if you look at somewhere like dubai qatar these are pretty much unlivable for most of the year now um, and nevertheless they support a population it's a small very wealthy population that lives in a sort of artificial environment they're essentially living in an air-conditioned shopping mall everything they need all the food all the water um, everything, all the goods are brought in to them and that's fine for a small population. Although, of course, you know, anybody who's not in this nice bubble, the construction workers in Qatar, um, labourers that work outside, they suffer the fatal effects of this. You know, kidney diseases, heat um, exhaustion, heat stroke death, all sorts. You take a city like Mumbai, There are currently 22 million people living in there. Um, Nine million of those people are living in slum housing, which is um, little concrete boxes with metal roofs. These are already eight to 10 degrees hotter in there than in the city proper. Um, So, you know, when when air conditioning is switched on in extreme heat scenarios, um, there are immediate power outages and, you know, these are driven on generators it's just not feasible that those 9 million little uh, those 9 million people and and this is pop, this population is growing of course because um climate migrants from elsewhere in india and um pakistan and, and uh, bangladesh are all migrating to the cities like mumbai um so this population is growing it's just not feasible that every single they all have their own little aircon it wouldn't it's just that that doesn't work in terms of the thermodynamics let alone in terms of the energy cost So they will have to move, but not everybody. They will be able to support a kind of Dubai-esque population, for example, but people will have to move. They will not be able to adapt. And that's what people are not talking about. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Nomad Century.
1: Unparalleled levels of cooperation Mm. uh, are needed. And I mean, what what is going to get us, what is going to get us there um, to that kind of level? COVID example, lovely um the progress we are making through our um you know meetings in glasgow or you know wherever we are but this is a level of unparalleled cooperation in a world that seems in some senses to be fragmenting even further who's going to act um to get us moving together is it a united nations thing is it a g20 is it who's going to act together
0: well yes i mean i do think this is a global Crisis. I mean, it's a climate change is a global, a global change. Um, if, if I mean, if you zoom out and just look at our planet and see that, you know, that one ape species that originated in Africa that is now dispersed everywhere, you know, and if you then see the world hot, heating up and you see that that zone of uninhabitability, it seems very obvious that you would move those people to where the safety is and help them. It needs to be. It needs to be globally uh, coordinated. I think, and the UN, with all its flaws—and it has got many flaws, of course—is probably the best position to do so. But it needs to be done, you know, with teeth. We, we have, you know, the, these COP meetings, far too slow, far too ineffectual, far too—you know—they don't have—they don't have teeth to compel governments to do that, and yet. I do think it's amazing that it is. these agreements are made where every country, whether it's the United States or some tiny little um, Micronesian island state in the middle of nowhere, every single state has got a person sitting at that table. And that's amazing. We can do that. And, you know, for all its flaws, again. I think last November, there was there was something very interesting happening. For the first time, rich countries agreed to help pay for the climate loss and damages that poor countries are experiencing. And that is, you know, even though it wasn't called compensation and there are all kinds of, um, <laughs> you know, PR decisions around how it's portrayed... I think that's a really, really interesting development. And that is the path we're going on. If you look at how the reaction to the invasion of Ukraine, you know, an Eastern European nation, most people didn't give a moment's thought to before last year, how people have reacted and responded to that. I think that's very interesting. I think people, all of the history of our species shows that although, you know, I'm a scientist and I I look at evolution. My my last book, actually, Transcendence, really looked at um, the story of how we got here. And the message is always, you know, survival of the fittest. It's a kind of the conflict between different genes and different um, species. Actually, we survive through cooperation. The most cooperative survive because they're the strongest. And even though, you know, even though we are riven by conflict and we have that, that paradox that, that we are, you know, that we, that we're tribalist and, and we get, we get entrenched in, in these different um, competitions with each other. Actually, you know, we are nothing without each other. We can't survive alone. We are unique in that. We can't even give birth alone. You know, imagine an animal that it, That cannot give birth alone that needs strangers or or other relatives around just to ensure the survival of the next generation it's remarkable and and that is embedded in it's entrenched in our whole um, our whole success as a species throughout our lives we're networked everything we have has come from you know around the world by complete strangers all working in these networked um, social systems which, which means that we can relax and eat and drink without having to do anything much ourselves. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary.
1: And in that cooperation lies our hope. Thank you. Yeah. Let's thank Gaia uh, very much indeed. Oh, thank you.
0: Listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment, and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first ten issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.